0: Hello everybody, I hope you're all doing well. We have another amazing collection of stories for you this week. I really hope that you enjoy them. Sit back and relax as we drift further into Mr. Kreeb's mind. I work at the NSA on a military program called Project Winter, written by Zithero. I shouldn't be sharing this information, but I cannot let this go idly by. I know I'm going to be called a conspiracy nut job, but you need to believe me. I work as an NSA contractor. We have a protocol called Packet Catch, and without going into the technicalities, it isolates outgoing internet traffic from some locations and prevents it from reaching its server. To ensure the user is unaware, The system sends a false receive signal, posing as the accepting server. Basically, you make a Facebook or a Reddit post, the OP gets a Posted Successfully message, even seeing the posts themselves, but the thing never goes anywhere. This gives us the ability to not only intercept communications, but to sandbox them entirely. It's disturbing tech, but not as disturbing as what I saw caught. This communication came through. It got filed under a huge program called Project Winter. Below, I have the debrief, but I don't have time to decrypt some portions. I barely have time to translate this. I hope this posts okay. I've disabled a packet catch in my office for now, but I don't know how long that I have. File 1, State 785321-1256. Origin, 45, Info, Intercepted Communication via NSA Packet Catch Protocol, 55, Supervising Officer, General Scott Drake, Classification Level, Top Secret, Summary, Asset Information Has Been Encrypted, Intercepted Communication of Fighter, The Purpose Was to Warn of Asset Incursion. Asset had previously eliminated target-designated primary and was en route to the secondary target location. Transcript to follow. Translated from modern standard Arabic. Begin NSA packet catch protocol. Intercept. My brothers and I cannot send this through the normal channels. I will address the world, for they must know of the horrors the Crusaders are unleashing. My name is Abu Adani. I have fled my camp and my brothers. They are all dead. Slaughtered by the Crusader's beast. We were camped out, a fire going and talking about our strategies. How much land we have lost. How the Crusaders are pushing us back so suddenly despite a lack of drone strikes. It was then the proximity alarms went off. Mullah takes his rifle with Mission and Ali. What is out there, Mission? Mula asks. Mission looks out through his thermal goggles. It's at least three of them very close together. He looks at his goggles in frustration. This must be broken. A loud howl is heard from the darkness. All of us ready our weapons. Mula even picks up his rocket. We alert the camp and everyone getting their weapons and rousing our sleeping brethren. Myself, Mullah, Mission, and Ali head out over the dune, weapons at the ready while the camp turns on floodlights and starts generators. On the far side of the camp, one of the lights suddenly goes down. We hear shots being fired and screaming. We run as quickly as we can to the other side of the camp but stop as another light post falls, sparks flying. Only the light of guns and sounds of conflict and screaming coming from the fallen lights A sudden explosion occurs, a truck carrying fuel flies into the air in a fiery blaze. Someone launched a rocket inside the camp. What fool would do such a thing? Soon, the next closest light is knocked down, and the same sounds are heard. Gunfire screaming, and then silence. We are standing at the next light post. We run, heading into the desert darkness, hoping to outrun whatever is attacking us. Mishin turns and looks at the camp with his thermal goggles. Something's coming, he shouts. Before any of us can react, Ali shouts, A beast! Before our eyes, a hulking mass of white fur and muscle attacks Ali, ripping his head off in an instant and flinging the rest of his body at Mullah. I start shooting the beast. Mishin tries to ready his rifle, but the creature rips off his arm. As it draws closer to me, I can see it illuminated by my gunfire. Its head is that of a wolf. Massive jaws and rows of teeth surrounded by black jowls and white fur. Two pointed ears on its head a twist and twitch, searching for noise. Its yellow eyes affix on me. Its nearly ten foot tall mass barreling toward me. Each moment of gunfire shows my bullets pitting into its white fur staining it red. I continue to fire, trying to strike the creature's head. A hail of bullets collides with the mighty beast's skull, and it falls to the ground with a yipe and a whimper, sliding dead in front of my feet. Mullah staggers towards me. His leg is injured from having Ali's body hurled at him. Before our eyes, the beast begins to shrink, seemingly dead. Before long, the beast turns into nothing more than a man. He's a powerful looking man, with very dark skin and no hair. The only thing he wears is a set of dog tags. We drag his body back to the camp and begin to build the fire taller, ready to dispose of the body. Whatever unholy creature this is, it must be burned. Well, that's what we thought. Other fighters join our efforts as we try to ready it hotter. It has to burn this unclean thing to ash. Mullah groans in pain. What was that, Abu? Is it a man? The thing, it, it was huge. A monster. The Crusaders grow desperate. They make packs with demons to destroy us, but we will not let them win. By Allah, we will triumph over the Crusaders as always. Before I finish, I hear screaming from behind me. I turn only to see one man being dragged off behind a tent, the body of the creature now gone. Nothing but a trail of blood in the sand leading to the rest of the camp. Mullah is limping but he has his rifle ready to die in battle of martyr. Other fighters join me, who is where I am unsure of at the time. All of us surround the fire, our backs to it hoping that it will stave off the beast. Of the ten tents, there seems to be three already ravaged. We spot the beast running from one tent, moving to a fourth. More gunfire now. Red splatters against the tents and limbs can be seen hurled into the air before the light is snuffed out. More men run from the camp towards our fire, joining us in our last stand. We open fire, trying to cover their escape, our shots barely distracting the creature's attention. After a few moments, all this quiet in the camp. We hear the sounds of generators being powered down, an occasional burst of gunfire. The lights are all out. The only light from the bonfire behind us. Our shadows obscure the now darkened camp, and I hear the sounds of shuffling men behind me, some reloading their rifles, some kneeling down and praying. From the darkness, the creature leaps into the air, Howling and it pounces on Mula, killing him as I hear his spine snap, his ribcage collapsing beneath the weight of the mighty beast. The creature rips his head from his body, despite Mula's body being crushed. One of the fighters points his rocket at the beast. Before I can stop him, the creature pounces on him next. The fighter falls into the fire, the creature pushing him in with massive hands. It does so knowingly. It grins a sick smile at me, its yellow eyes locking on my own as it does. My eyes grow wide as I watch my brother in arms burnt to a cinder. I drop my weapon as fast as I can. In the distance, I hear the screaming panic of my fellow fighters. But I must live to tell others I know that I must. I hear more screaming bursts of gunfire in than the sound of ripping and tearing mixed with the cries of the beast finally i turn only to see an explosion the bonfire blasting into the air someone must have fired the rocket at the fire or a grenade went off inside of it to my abject horror someone's head sails through the air and lands before me in the sand i turn away hearing more sounds of death and horror In desperation, I stop near the head and begin to dig into the sand frantically. I dig as my life depends on it, and then I bury myself, taking my shirt and holding it over my head to leave air enough for me to breathe. I lay there and wait. The waiting seems to take hours, the sounds of the beast ravaging the camp are muted by the sand over my shirt. My body freezes as I feel footsteps near me, The sand vibrates with the mass of the creature. I can hear its breath, sniffing and snorting in the air. It sniffs near me and I pray to Allah that it is sniffing the head instead. I feel something on top of me, something rolling. The creature is rolling the head over me. I hold my breath, trying to remain perfectly still. I hear the beast sneeze and it shakes itself and the footsteps vanish slowly. After a few more minutes, I peek my head out. I see nothing. No fire from the camp and no light. I hear nothing. No sounds of my fellow fighters. No sounds from anything living. Even the head is missing, likely taken by the unholy monstrosity of the Crusaders. I jump to my feet and run. I run and do not look back. For hours, I run until I see the next camp. The fighters there help me, get me to my feet and give me water. If it had been the day, I never could have crossed such a distance in the sun. That is why I write this now and I will send it to the world. My god, I hear the howling. I must send this before the crusader's beast devours me. Be warned, the crusaders have sold their souls for victory. End packet intercept. Run received a signal success. Enclosed, documentation considered classified, top secret, air-gapped storage only, distribution of file in any form is a federal offense. I'll try to upload more of this when I can. Right now it's difficult to even get this stuff out. For all I know, I'm going to be dead in the morning, but I had to send this out somewhere. So, I found more information on this thing. This is a debrief of a pilot working the operation. This was some kind of mission or a running op from the military. I found this project under the name Project Winter, but there's a constant name running here, sometimes named White Wolf, otherwise named Demon Winter. I didn't have time to decrypt everything the first time, so I'm just copy-pasting this so as soon as possible to get it out there. I have no idea how I'm still alive, but I don't think that I have a whole lot of time. I'm going to die for the truth, I guess. This isn't something that should be kept secret. I'm going to try and flee the country after this post. I'm hoping that I can get out, Wish me luck. Here's three more files I managed to get my hands on. File 2554, state 787-325-1572. Origin, USA-55 Info, unauthorized communication from S-97 Pilot SBC Darren Francis, Project Winter Transport Operations Supervising Officer, General Scott Drake Classification, TS-SCI Source File, 3553423-23-3234 Date 12-22-2018 Asset information has been encrypted. Capture of unauthorized communication from S-97 Raider Pilot after a drop asset, Sergeant Demon Winter to primary target, and follow-up to the secondary target. Begin NSA packet catch protocol intercept. I have no idea where to start, so I'm just going to write this here and be done with it. This was insane, 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 insane. I get top secret missions all the time and I understand discretion, but holy crap, man. This is beyond what I'm paid to deal with. I'm going to start up slow and work my way to how insane things got. I'm an as 97 Raider pilot SPC, Darren Francis. I do drops all the time for spec ops in this thing. Sometimes though, but usually not. Usually, I'm happy to fly this thing. It's one of the few transport choppers that can hold its own in a firefight. I got tapped by General Scott Drake for work on this special project. I was told that I would be dropping off an A-Specialized Raider. It had some stealth tech on it. A self-destruct button included. Awesome sounding, right? Wrong. Real wrong. It all started out as a normal mission as far as I know. Sitting at the base, waiting for my passengers, I knew that I had a crew of two. That was all the intel that I got. That, and the destination. Two guys start towards my chopper, and at this point, I realized something was up. The first guy seemed like your normal, everyday soldier. A dude was about six foot one maybe, high and tight cut, wearing desert fatigues, and olive rucksack. Had a weapons case in his other hand and some pretty heavy mirrored sunglasses. The last bit was odd considering how it was nearly dusk at the base, granted at all other times it's bright as heck in the desert. The second guy was different. This guy was almost 6'6", six six, bald head and mean looking. He is walking behind the other soldier wearing nothing but his camel vest, pants and boots. Doesn't even look like his boots are tied. Guy has no gear, just a pair of cigars in his hand as he gets to the chopper. The first guy climbs up into the chopper and plops himself down into the co pilot seat. He offers to shake my hand. Sergeant Elon Winter, nice to meet ya. I shake his hand. A specialist Darren Francis, you ever fly one of these before? I asked as I spin up the dual rotors. He nods. Oh yeah, only crashed one. He grins. I frown. We only have two. Well, now we do. He laughs, slapping me on the shoulder. I'm messing with you, pilot, calm down. This big guy peeks his head between us after he shuts the side door. Stop messing around, Elon, it's going to be sundown soon. He glances at me, killing time. And with that, he fades into the back and he straps in. Sergeant Elon looks at me. That's my older brother, and don't piss him off. I frown and get the Raider ready to launch. Sergeant Elon looks to the controls and checks some pre-flight stuff with me. I'm surprised because this is normally a solo kind of run, or so I was told. Not many people fly these Raiders. The S-97 is newer than new, not even technically in service yet. They didn't tell me that I was going to have a co-pilot. It's a nice surprise. I inform Sergeant Elon. He smiles to me. Oh, I picked up most of this stuff from the other pilots. Eventually got myself cleared for test flights and such. Granted, I've never taken one full bore. He gives me a side glance. I chuckle. You know dang well it's only rated at 200 knots. I get the chopper in the air, keeping her level. Sergeant Elon straps in. Yeah, just because they don't want their baby's pain job scratched up. He looks at me. Punch it. I nod and get the radar in the air. After we're a good distance from base, I let the dang thing rip. I love this bird because while flying level, the thing doesn't shake, it doesn't heave. barely vibrates. I glanced at the air speed gauge and laughed as it hit 250 knots. Elon speaks into the co-pilot headset. Unofficial records 255. I nod as I see us creep towards 254. Wouldn't know that we were going that fast unless you kept an eye on the gauges. Sergeant Elon shouts as we hit 256. Oh baby, let's book it. Sergeant Deadman growls from the back. What the heck are you hooting about? Sergeant Elon chuckles looking back to the cabin. Just working on getting you to the drop zone early, brother. Sergeant Deadman merely leans back, head hitting the headrest of his seat. Get us there in one piece. I lean over. Did he say speed up? Sergeant Elon nods. Yes, he did. I grin as we pushed the Raider to 270. I'm sure that she could have gone faster, but at this point, I noticed on the GPS that we were getting near our destination. That meant time to drop altitude, lower speed, and set these stealth modes on. Sergeant Elon sighed. Worst part's about going that fast is we don't get to go that fast for too long. He grins, holding up his fist. I bump it, smiling. You're better company than most, Sergeant, I shout. Elon just grins as he pulls out something from his pack. It looks like some beef jerky. He tosses this into the back cabin. Load up. I'll have plenty to eat out there, Sergeant Deadman says. Long pig plenty. Elon's face falls a bit as we get closer to the destination. In the distance, I can see an encampment. It looks to be about a hundred or so guys down there. there. We're plenty far from it, and I slowly bring the Raider down low over some dunes. I check the thermal cameras, and the entire camp is lit up. Too many combatants to really count. Sergeant Deadman is unstrapped and opens up the side door. We gotta count. I shake my head. It's too hot, man. That place is at least a hundred combatants. I don't think this is going to work without an airstrike. It's a freaking buffet, Sergeant Deadman says, shooting me a serious look, his eyes are flashing yellow. All I can eat. He jumps down. I notice that he left his boots inside. I look to Sergeant Elon. Did he just take his boots off? Sergeant Elon's not in a joking mood anymore as he moves to the back. Unpacking a huge sniper rifle from the weapons case. Turn as so, I have a clear shot of the camp, Darren. His voice is almost devoid of any emotion. I notice that he took a sip of something out of a blue bottle. He almost looks exhausted as he finishes putting the rifle together. I just nod, turning the chopper about 90 degrees. He's just doing recon right. I hear a loud howl in the distance. Sergeant Elon lays down prone setting his rifle up on the floor of the raider, barrel pointing at the door. No. Before I know it, I hear gunfire in the distance and the whole camp lights up with searchlights. Shortly after that, they start to go down. I mean the lights literally start to fall. Holy crap, I say. Sergeant Elon is talking to him via radio communications, spotting through the scope of the rifle. I'm linked into the same frequency as well. Got a runner on the west side, pop him or let him go. A gravelly low voice comes over the comms. Pop him. Sergeant Elon doesn't move. Keep her level, Darren, he drones. I prep the stabilizers and keep the raiders solid and steady. After a moment he fires, the chopper barely shudders. Sergeant Elon states flatly, Tango down. Sergeant Deadman's gravelly voice creeps over the comms, giving me a shiver up my spine. Pop, pop, I'm making him drop. There's growling before the comms cut out. Sergeant Elon looks like he's ready to pass out, his eyes are drooping. Sergeant, you alright? I ask. 10-4, he says simply. A weak smile coming over him. Give me five minutes. There's a blast from the camp now, the whole place looks to be on fire. Sergeant Elon starts into the comms again. Runners, south side. He's booking. Sergeant Deadman growls through the comms again. Let him go. We're gonna track him to the next camp. Sergeant Elon picks his rifle up and pulls the magazine out. He leans back and pops a small red bottle of something knocking it back. He closes his eyes and starts to take a deeper breath. Some color coming back to his face. The heck is wrong with you? I ask. Sergeant Elon chuckles. Well, Nothing now, I'm not dying anymore. He packs his rifle back up, and then takes his seat in the co-pilot chair again. We're going to be following a run of your thermals, so no more fun beelines. Kinda sucks, I know. I nod. I should drop down to pick up Sergeant Deadman. I say before I hear a thud in the back. The raider shifts slightly. I turn to see Deadman in the back, shutting the door his face covered in blood. I shiver. Sergeant Elon reaches into his rucksack and tosses a small bag at him. Clean yourself up, man. You look like you just went down on a girl during that time of the month. Sergeant Deadman grabs the bag and pops it open. You're freaking laugh right, you know that. He spits something out. I swear that it's a chunk of bone. I decide not to ask any questions, I just look to the thermals and see the single guy pop out of the sand running in the dark. I keep a good enough distance so he can't hear the chopper. Sergeant Deadman is now right behind me, and he sniffs the air next to me. Scared? I shake my head. You're an idiot not to be, he explains. Fear keeps you alive. There's a reason you feel it, it's only natural. Enough, Deadman. Sergeant Elon starts. Sergeant Deadman glares at Elon. No, it's never enough. Elon rolls his eyes and just keeps them on the thermal cameras. I decide to ask a dumb question. What did you do to them? How'd you survive that many men? Sergeant Deadman cracks his neck and grins. I can do what an entire SEAL team can't. I can drop in, kill an 87 targets and get out. It's just what I do. With your mouth? I ask. Sergeant Deadman is silent for a moment. Don't like letting things go to waste. Besides, Long Pig is a delicacy. What the heck is Long Pig? I ask. Sergeant Elon shakes his head. Go easy on him, bro. Long Pig is what I call those freaking monsters masquerading as people down there. Sergeant Deadman stands behind me, on hand on my seat, the other on Sergeant Elon's. They, they're people, I said weakly. Sergeant Deadman shakes his head. No, man, they're a gift, I frown. A gift? What the heck are you talking about? A sick grin crosses Sergeant Deadman's face and I swear that I see his canines lengthen. They're the evil the U.S. has needed for so long. The dark enemy we needed to cut loose and go full bore on. We haven't had that since World War II. ''What are you talking about?'' I ask, keeping my distance from the man running. He's moving fast for a guy on foot. ''What? These guys? Everybody agrees that they're bad. ''Afghanistan. Yeah, there were bad people in there, but most of those guys didn't want to mess with us. Iraq, the same thing. Can't blame the people living there, but that group? ''These guys signed up to be murderers and thieves.'' They desiccate their own holy sites claiming they aren't holy enough. They murder innocent people on live TV, all for the privilege to die by our hands. Sergeant Deadman clenches his fist next to me. They want to die, so I'll oblige them. I want to bail out of this freaking shopper, but I just hold steady and hope not to upset him. I mean, there's gotta be a limit, right? We can't become monsters hunting these guys. We'd be worse than them. Worse than them, Sergeant Deadman laughs, leaning his head back as he does. You think anybody cares about these guys? Russia dropped Willy Pete on these guys and the u n turned a blind eye. This is it. This is the modern age. No one cares how they die. They just want them gone. Even the fighters want to die in battle. It's their goal, their desire. Why deprive them of it? Sergeant Deadman moves into the back. Let me know when that little guy gets to his next camp. I'm going to take a nap. He strapped himself in and slipped a pair of earbuds on. Sergeant Elon turns next to me. Sorry about that. He gets heavy on nights like this. He's really riled up. Nights like this, I ask. Sergeant Elon nods, motioning into the moon. I look up, noticing that it's full. After several hours, we finally see the target make it to another camp. This one is smaller and didn't seem to be on any of our maps. I think we're here." Sergeant Deadman pops the side of the door open and jumps out. The chopper is over 50 feet in the air and he just bails out. Sergeant Elon makes his way to the door, lower us down and point me to the camp. I doubt we're going to follow another one." He pulls out the blue bottle and takes a swig of it, laying down and ready in his weapon. I frown not and do as I'm told. Mid similar chaos in the next camp and this time, lacking Elon picking anyone off, Sergeant Dedman pops back into the chopper after Sergeant Elon clears the doorway and takes his seat next to me. Sergeant Elon takes another swig from the small red bottle. Sergeant Dedman burps and closes the door. Let's go home, I'm stuffed. Stuffed? Does he eat all of them or just some of them? Jesus, what the heck was I transporting? I put the Raider full tilt back to base, making it back in under an hour. I had no plan on being with these nutjobs any longer. I hope to request a transfer out going forward. Sergeant Elon looks to me before he leaves. Sergeant Deadman putting his boots on and hopping out the second that we land. Hey, my brother's not that bad normally. He's only trying to mess with you, I promise. I frown. What the heck is he? Sergeant Elon just shakes his head, his smile fading. If you haven't figured it out by now, man, I don't know what to tell you. He's exactly what you think he is. Exactly what you think he can't possibly be. He sighs as he pulls up his rucksack and gun case. He's a soldier. End packet intercept. Run received a signal of success. Enclosed documentation considered classified. T.S. Air gap storage only. Distribution of file in any form is a federal offense. The communication kicks out here, but there's a debriefing that I found, and it's the scariest part of this entire thing. It's a transcript of sorts. File 255, State 7855, 55668, Origin USA 117, Info Mission Debriefing. Supervising Officer General Scott Drake Classification T.S.S.C.I. Source File 6688-55-1174 Date 5-5-2017 Summary Transcript of debriefing after 100th successful mission of Project Winter Asset is speaking with SO regarding reassignment and Debriefing Recording begins General Drake speaks first Debriefing number 100 Mission Success Asset Sergeant Deadman Winter Supervising Officer General Scott Drake Date May 5th 2017 Happy single to Miles sir Sergeant Winter begins Hmm Comfortable Sergeant No sir Well that's a shame Wanted to see how you were doing Seems to be going better than the previous program so far Lightning doesn't strike twice, it seems, sir. More like a twister the way we found the other volunteer. You wanted me to create someone like me but didn't give them the opportunity to tear men apart. I had to defend myself. What did you expect, sir? I expected a pack. I didn't expect to find two men with their throats ripped out. They messed with the wrong alpha. I guess that makes you unique, doesn't it? Seems you're better working alone paper shuffle sounds of them sliding across the surface the program is going to take a hiatus while we prep some better transports for you growling noise followed by something slamming down on the tabletop are you trying to mothball me more growling sir no sergeant we're merely giving you a break you've done over a hundred missions so far and we're pleased but we don't want to work you too hard Permission to speak freely, sir. I'll regret it, but granted. I love to kill, sir. I lust to kill. I feel it home in blood. You send me home and you'll find that. I'll do the same. Just stay side. So, a repeat of your father, then. Growling and snarling is heard. A chair slams into a nearby glass window, shattering it. You want to end up like him, too, sir. A pistol is heard being cocked. Sergeant, I want to remind you of two things. Firstly, is the chain of command in threatening a senior officer. Second, is the silver nitrate rounds that I have loaded into this pistol. I may be an old man, but I'm still the crack shot. I'll plant a right in your heart. Chair scrapes against the ground and is set back up. I'm sorry, sir. You know my father antagonizes me, sir. It's his death at keeping you in this program to begin with lest you want to go home and face charges for murder. Yes, sir. As I've said, a lifetime in solitary. No one wants that, especially one with a lifetime like yours. Understand, sir. Regardless, if you don't take the R&R, then I'll push you back to active duty. Thank you, sir. But your brother is likely going to want to take a break. Understood, sir. Good. We'll get you back out there in a week. Think you can hold on until then? No promises, sir. Hmm. Maybe one of you is all we do need. End of recording. Enclosed documentation considered classified TS-SCI. Air-gapped storage only. Distribution of file in any form is a federal defense. This guy ran a crap load of ops, but I don't think he's doing it anymore. I found some details here in the final file that I'll upload. File 3547 State 58565 Origin USA 55 Info Project Debrief Mission Commencement Supervising Officer General Scott Drake Classification TS-SCI Source File 77555-32-6585 Date one thirty one twenty eighteen. Summary Recommendations from Captain Sofia Vasquez regarding key asset in Project Winter Debrief Reading Sergeant Winter's debriefs puts great concern on whether or not Sergeant Deadman Winter can adapt to normal society after countless successful missions in a solo environment outside of his own brother, Sergeant Elon Winter. Add to his hostile reactions to off-duty recommendations toward multiple SOs makes his integration highly unlikely. On numerous occasions, Sergeant Deadman Winter has expressed his love of killing and states that the war cannot be won without him. Outside of egotistical behavior, this appears a borderline psychotic. Recommendation would be to reinstate into another hostile environment where a Sergeant Winter is most comfortable. Either that or mental health counseling to ensure that he can properly adapt to life at home. But this is doubtful. I feel Sergeant Deadman Winter would refuse mental health evaluations at every turn. Sergeant Winter has already requested reassignment. Highly recommend that he be given that reassignment rather than in sent home. Sergeant Winter would be happier to be KIA than to return stateside. I share General Scott Drake's opinion that we all would be better off as well. Captain Sophia Vasquez, USA. Project End. Asset to be assigned to Project Serif per requesting Officer Colonel James Montgomery Anderson. Transfer of SO from General Scott Drake to Major TC. I literally cannot find anything on a Project Serif. It's like the file doesn't exist on the database, which is insane. It's one thing to see something showing up at Classified and getting no access. Another to not even see it at all. I wonder if they don't even have it on the database at all. Maybe only on paper. I can't imagine why they wouldn't trust their own computers. Nor do I get why the SO's name is abbreviated here. I'll see if I can get any more information on Project Serap. But for now, this is all the interesting stuff that I have on Project Winter. Wish me luck. Our school went into lockdown in 6th grade. Nothing about it makes any sense. Written by Zacharias Frost This story is old, almost 15 years old at this point. To this day, it remains probably the single most unexplained event in my entire life. Those who witnessed it seldom, if ever, speak about it. All these years later, and I'm still not sure what to make of it, so I figured posting it here may lead to some answers. I was in 6th grade at the time, but my memory of the day is as vivid now as it was then, much to my dismay. I've suffered from nightmares on and off ever since, and the true extent of my mental well-being may never be truly known. It started like any other day, with me grumpily walking against the school bus, and nearly missing it as per norm. It was mid-September at the time, with temperate winds and comforting warmth renowned to early autumn. The place that I grew up in was a small midwestern town in the central U.S. The whole school had maybe 200 kids in it in its grades 1 through 8, and my bus only brought around 20 to 30 of us. My friends Scotty and Lamar hopped on at the second stop, And the three of us discussed Yu-Gi-Oh cards most of the way to school. Maybe most of this is irrelevant, but I think it's important to emphasize how boring and routinely this whole day began. It made what happened later that much stranger. It wasn't until lunch that something finally happened. I had met up with Scotty, Lamar, and a few of our other friends after eating we formed a group and went out into the grass field to play our variation of football the style that we played was known as kill the carrier for those that don't know it was basically american football but with a more youthful angst somebody would just punt the ball and whoever got it would run aimlessly while praying to the good lord above as everybody else tried to obliterate them as you can imagine It spawned a lot of fights and got many of us suspended over the years, and yet we kept playing because we were dumb schoolchildren. So one of the kids punts it and this kid named Robert catches it. He made it like three steps before getting clobbered by like five kids, to the laughter and winces of everyone else. Things went on that way for a bit, and at some point, Kyle got the ball. Now Kyle was like the best punter in terms of distance, but knowing which direction it would go was anyone's guess. So Kyle boots it, and he watches it soars far to the left and off into the woods. Our school was in the middle of this big field, and the improvised football field was right next to the woods that surrounded it all about 200 yards out. Good job, Kyle, you idiot. Another kid, pressed and jeered. Kyle just laughed and he flipped him off as he jogged towards the tree line to retrieve it. He reached in a moment later, and slowly began searching the woods while the rest of us waited. I watched as he looked around in there, and suddenly he just froze up. His whole body just went stiff as a board, and he just stood there staring for like ten seconds before someone finally yelled at him to hurry up. Kyle didn't budge, nor would react to the insult in any way. Another few seconds passed before he slowly turned back to face us, and that's when I noticed the slack-mouthed, wide-eyed expression on his face. Dang Kyle, you crap your pants or something? Another kid, Carlos, said with a laugh. But Kyle's expression didn't falter. He then quickly glanced back at the woods. A split second later, and he fell into his back, Scrambling backwards and muttering frantically. Nah, screw that man, screw that. He was met with a chorus of laughter from the others. Without pausing at all, Kyle just walked quickly back towards the school without another word. The others made jokes and laughed, but his reaction really unsettled me. The horror on his face appeared genuine, and I had never seen him look like that. Kyle was the type to never seem afraid of anything, and seeing him react like he did was downright worrying. Scotty and I then silently approached the spot that Kyle had gone to, both of us now a bit hesitant. The rest of the group had now gone mostly silent, with only muttered conversation and hushed tones behind us. Once we had reached the grove, we slowly appeared within. I spotted the football almost right away, only about thirty feet within, but no sign of anything out of the ordinary. I had been in that patch of woods about a hundred times before, and nothing looked any different. Nothing obvious that would have spooked Kyle like that, but still, I felt the hairs on the back of my neck stand straight up. It was a really odd feeling, but I just shrugged it off. Ignoring them, I sauntered inside to grab the ball and as soon as my hand had touched it, something changed. I've still not found the best way to describe this, but the closest thing is like when a plane depressurizes. My ears popped, and my equilibrium seemed knocked off kilter for a split second. It was the weirdest feeling, and it struck me completely out of nowhere. After pausing for a moment to confirm that I wasn't about to pass out or something, I grabbed the ball and I stood back up As soon as I did I felt something on the back of my neck Hot air coming in rhythmic into rancid waves Like someone was literally breathing down on the back of my neck I spun back around heart suddenly racing in my chest There was nothing behind me aside from Scotty standing and staring unsettled back at me You good dude? He asked Truth be told I didn't know whether I was or not or how to account for what had just happened, but I nodded back anyways. Part of me wondered whether it was just anxiety or something, but I didn't really know what to think. As a young boy in middle school though, admitting to fear was a social ending and not something that I was about to do. You didn't see anything behind me, did you? Scotty gave me a curious glance. No, why? It was clear to me that he wasn't lying and he was standing much too far away for it to have been him messing with me somehow. Furthermore, I heard no footsteps behind me, and if it had been him, then the pile of leaves in the ground would have been a dead giveaway. With an uncertain shiver, I shrugged it off as best I could, and the two of us returned to the others with the ball. I didn't play much after that, as my mind was suddenly convinced that something was very wrong but I couldn't pinpoint it. It felt like somebody was watching us, hitting well within the trees. Eventually, I decided to go and try and find Kyle, but the bell rang before I could. Math was my next class, and I spent most of it trying to forget that unnerving feeling and to calm myself down. Things went as normal, but after about 20 minutes, I felt myself needing to pee. The teacher excused me to go to the restroom, and I grabbed the hall pass from her desk as I exited the classroom. As I made my way down the hall, I noticed that outside had suddenly gotten dark. Not dark enough for night, but dark like a thick, overcast of clouds. Since the sun had been shining brightly during lunch, I found that kind of odd, too, but didn't think much more of it. As mentioned earlier, our school was small in terms of students and faculty, so of course, the building itself was no exception. It was only about 75,000 square feet, or about 20,000 smaller than the average Walmart. It was just outside of our hometown and about half a mile away from the local police station. The lights flickered when I was in the bathroom washing my hands. Again, not something super unusual. As the school was old and prone to the occasional electrical mishap, they stabilized a moment later, and I made my way back out into the hallway. As soon as I exited the bathroom, I froze. The outside window had gotten much darker than before, like it was suddenly the middle of the night. My initial thought was, cool, a solar eclipse. But as someone emerged from the office, that thought evaporated. A familiar, middle-aged man hustled into the hallway, scrambling to the front doors and quickly locking them. It was our school principal, and as he turned to face me standing in the hall behind him, I saw an unrivaled terror etched upon his face. Get back to your class now. Tell your teacher, Code Silver. My heart sank as I heard the words, and I realized the deadly seriousness in his voice. Without a word, I sprinted back to the classroom, flinging the door open and scrambling inside as I got one last look behind me. The entire environment seemed to have flipped in an instant, and something was very wrong. My teacher, Mrs. Smith, scolded me in an annoyed tone as I re-entered. I turned back from the door and I stared at her. Her expression seemed to slowly turn from cross to visibly concerned. Coat's over, I muttered out. Mrs. Smith's eyes went wide. Lock the door. Everyone into the corner now, she commanded. The students did as requested, quickly filing into the corner and out of sight from the door. I locked the door, and Mrs. Smith rushed towards me to ensure that it was secure. After which, we rushed back to her desk, dot a few numbers in her desk phone, and spoke. Her voice blared over the intercom reiterating the lockdown order for all others in the school. Everyone packed together tightly into the corners and out of sight of the door. The entire class then hunkered down as we had practiced many times before. Once there, Mrs. Smith had doused the lights and everything fell eerily silent. The next few moments, we heard the faint sounds of the next-door classrooms, likely doing the same as all of us, held our breath. Most American kids probably know that cold silver is the national alert given for an active shooter. Anyone who attended a school in the States probably remembers practicing the lockdown drills at one point or another. Basically, the whole class just locks the doors and hides together in the corner. The only defense is the locked door and hope that whatever danger is outside will not be able to get in. What did you see out there, Eric? One of the girls in the class whispered to me. Mrs. Smith shushed the both of us before I could reply. I pondered the same question in silence as we all waited. The sounds of the other classrooms soon hushed as well. The entire vicinity fell eerily quiet as all of us waited like fish trapped in a barrel. The more I thought about the way the principal had reacted, the less sense that it made. I hadn't seen anything to indicate an active shooter. And I just assumed that he had. And yet still, I had no explanation for how things had suddenly gone so dark. It wasn't like a shooter could affect the weather. And the windows were far too large for someone to have covered them so quickly. Something very different was happening. The hallway lights extinguished a few minutes later. Leaving us alone in silence and sudden complete darkness... Even the windows in the classroom didn't show any light from beyond and the darkness became so thick I could barely see my own hand in front of my face. We stayed like that for several minutes before a sudden calamity struck. It sounded like the shattering of glass and creaking of metal. My heart was throbbing in my chest then and the muffled sounds of crying and whimpering from the other students surrounded me. Mrs. Smith shushed us all trying the best to maintain order. By that point, my eyes had adjusted a bit to the darkness, and I could see Mrs. Smith looking through the door's side windows. The silence befell once more, a lingeringness which lasted several minutes. Suddenly, Mrs. Smith audibly gasped and backed away from the window. I saw her hold her index up to her lips and could see tears sparkle in her eyes. Suddenly... The room began to grow brighter. I thought the power was coming back on when I realized that the light was actually coming from something out in the hallway. It was a bright effervescence with a very slight reddish tint that softly shimmered. The light seemed to flicker ever so slightly, like that of a flashlight losing power but different somehow. In the years since I've tried to replicate that light using various other light sources, I've never been able to get it right though. It wasn't a flashlight or an open flame producing the light, that much I'm certain of, and I can't say for certain what it was. A sound emerged along with it, sounding like wet, squishy footsteps as though someone were trudging through a swamp. They came closer and the light grew brighter. In a few seconds it seemed to be directly outside the classroom door, and I could literally feel the other students hold their breath. A slight thud hit the door, and none of us dared to make a sound. The door handle jiggled slightly, but from our vantage point, none of us could see who or what was on the other side. The lights seemed to flicker and change intensity outside, beaming through the windows in altered variations. We were hunkered down perpendicular to the door, meaning the light couldn't reach us so long as it stayed outside. We could only hide there and offer silent prayers that whatever was making the light wouldn't get in. By some miracle it didn't, and several seconds later the jiggling handle had stopped. The footsteps then grew distant and the light faded. The relief was palpable, but it didn't last. Perhaps a minute later and a sudden shrill ear-piercing scream rang out on the hallway, one that seemed cut short at its apex. The sounds of a slight skirmish ensued with crashing and thumping. It was over in just a few seconds, and the uncomfortable silence returned. It went on that way for hours with me and the other students hiding in the darkness. We heard more screams and other noises at certain points, but whatever was out there never returned to the door. At some point, the darkness outside finally relented and it seemed as though the sun was beginning to rise. I know that wasn't the case because my wristwatch told me it was just before 5pm, seeming to affirm that discovery was the fact that the sun was still high in the sky and not anywhere near the horizon. A few minutes later, the sounds of police sirens had emerged. Dozens of police and even a SWAT team swarming the building soon after. Ushering all of us out from within, room by room. The sense of relief was indescribable as they let us out, but not without a modicum of confusion. Several windows and doors were shattered and parts of the hallways had been damaged as well, With parts of the hall even appearing melted. Some of the lockers were slumped and now formed like an intense heat had been focused on them. I don’t know how that would be possible without causing a fire, but that’s apparently what had happened. Once I finally stepped outside, I found my parents waiting for me along with my older sister. They hugged me tighter than ever before, as dozens of other families around us did the same. Behind us, I noticed the police sectioning off the school with barriers and tape as though it were an active crime scene. I questioned my parents on what had happened, but they didn't say much. We returned to home and allowed the cops to conduct their investigation and that's when everything got a lot stranger. Later that same day, I started feeling nauseous, and I proceeded to puke my guts out for the remainder of the evening. The headache that I got then was by far the worst that I had ever experienced. My parents at first thought it was an aftermath of the trauma, until some of the other parents said the same thing happened to their kids. Before I even knew what was happening, a bunch of dudes in biohazard equipment showed up, they ran a bunch of tests on me and tell me to remain calm. My parents and sister were separated from me, and I didn't see them for several days afterwards. The obvious concern was that myself and the other kids that felt sick had contracted some sort of virus, and with the previous events at the school, people were worried it was some sort of bioweapon attack. Thankfully, I woke up the following day feeling loads better, The medical personnel continued running tests, but everything looked relatively normal. Eventually, they made the discovery that our sickness was not due to a viral agent, bacteria, or even mold, but instead due to radiation exposure. Thankfully, it wasn't enough to do serious long-term damage, but obviously explaining it was another matter entirely, one which we have yet to resolve, our school was closed down for almost a month after this event, which at the time was fantastic news for me. Once we were finally allowed to return to school, we were given zero explanation and just basically were expected to forget anything ever happened. There were never any news reports, nor interviews, or articles of any kind. It's like the whole thing never happened. And were it not for the memories of those who had lived through it, there wouldn't be any record of it at all. Kyle, the same kid from earlier, ended up not showing up for his English class directly following lunch period. For a while, people thought that he had something to do with the lockdown and hack. Maybe he did, but I doubt that we'll ever know. He hasn't been the same since that day almost 15 years ago now, and he's not the only one. Our school principal, the same guy that I had seen in the hallway, along with one of these school's janitors, also vanished never to be seen again. Police found no bodies, nor evidence of abduction or physical conflict, at least not that they're willing to admit publicly. There are no death certificates for any of them, and all three are simply listed as missing, and I doubt that's going to change anytime soon. I've questioned my parents about this, and they claim all the police told them was that a dangerous fugitive had broken into the school that day. A dangerous fugitive who apparently was capable of summoning eclipses, melting lockers and tearing metal doors from their hinges. Not to mention the whole radiation thing as well. That's another thing too, there's no record of a solar eclipse on that day, and I've looked everywhere I can I think too. We weren't allowed anywhere near the school for weeks afterwards, and cops had sectioned off the streets that led to it, while others patrolled the surrounding woods. On several occasions, we saw guys in blacked-out suburbans and cargo vans driving down there, but they never formally identified themselves. I overheard my parents talking back then once, and I remember my dad telling my mom that he didn't think the school would ever reopen. He said it didn't feel the police were conducting a routine investigation, and told her the entire thing seemed more like a cover-up than a crime scene. I've asked them more recently as well, but they seem to have learned very little. I have shared this experience with them too, and although they agree it was weird and disturbing, they don't seem to have any further theories. I have spoken to others who were there that day too, and I've gotten an all manner of mixed responses. Lamar seems to think we were attacked by aliens, while Scotty seems to think that our entire school fell into a separate dimension for a period of time. Maybe there is a logical and boring explanation to all of this, but I have yet to find it. Considering the secrecy, the lack of coverage in the way the authorities behaved, I would say that it's safe to conclude that something out of the ordinary had happened that day, but we may never know what it was. Whatever it was, I think Kyle saw it, and I think that's why he's gone. When the school finally reopened, it never quite felt the same, We ended up finishing out that year, but it wasn't without incident. Multiple students I know claimed to have seen things they couldn't explain in that building. Everything from ghosts to demons to wild animals. A few students even suffered full-on mental breakdowns and panic attacks while in the old school. I even know of at least one girl who spent some time in a psych ward afterwards. Perhaps most of it could be attributed to PTSD related to the lockdown, Or maybe there was something far more sinister at play. Nightmares and bouts of sleep paralysis followed me for years after this event, and I still get them every once in a while, even now. I never know how to describe them, but I wouldn't wish them on anyone. I've always hoped that one day I would be able to look back on this event with hindsight and understand that it was only scary because I was a kid, like I imagined it was wrong or I didn't understand. I still can't say that I understand what happened, but I can't help but feel more worried now than I was then. As a kid, life goes on and you forget, but as an adult you end up ruminating on it over and over until it comes to a worrying realization. We as humans set up these systems, ways of life and comfort zones, but there are things out there that can and sometimes will bypass all of them. Things that are far beyond understanding that we have little power against, and sometimes we got shown firsthand what those things are truly capable of. My town has its own emergency alert system. It has taken everything from me. Written by G Trip 14. Have you ever seen an emergency broadcast system signal on your television? Seven vertical bars of various colors blast onto your screen, accompanied by an ear-piercing tone that is impossible to ignore. A robotic voice will often interrupt the shrill cry with a message, indicating the variety of emergencies for your location. Thunderstorms, tornadoes, flash flooding, you know the type. My town has the same federal emergency system as yours. What we have that yours likely doesn't is a local emergency warning broadcast. It does not cover weather-related emergencies or Amber Alert notifications. We still take cover when it arrives, but most of us have never seen what we are hiding from. The first emergency alert I can remember happened when I was about 5 or 6 years old. I'm not completely sure, but it also wasn't terribly important. Talking puppets on a PBS show were teaching me ABCs and how to count to ten, and I was enraptured. The huge yellow bird was talking to me about ways to be kind to new friends when the screen began to crackle with static and the picture began to skip. Pink and yellow vertical bars filled the old television screen. A high-pitched whine poured from the speakers, and I can still remember covering my ears in terror. Nothing like that had ever happened before. Maybe my parents had discussed this with me, but my memory doesn't seem to be able to recall having been warned about it before. With my ears covered, I could still hear the overpowering hum. It seemed to be getting louder. Feeling a tap on my shoulder and turning my head, I could see my mother and father behind me, beckoning me to follow them. My father had a storm radio clutched in his right hand that was almost certainly blasting the same warning tone as the television. I awkwardly raised myself off the floor while still holding my ears and I followed them. We walked from the living room through the dining room and onto the back porch. Dad pulled the metal hatched doors to the storm cellar open and waved my mother and me inside. Once I began toddling down the stairs, I removed my hands from my ears to grasp onto the banister. The humming was still pouring from the radio, but the volume was turned down and it no longer hurt my ears. Is bad weather coming? I had asked my mother in confusion. The window shades were open in the living room that day and I can still recall the bright rays of sunshine stretching toward me on the carpeted floor. It looked nice outside. My mother turned her head toward me and held up a finger to her mouth. We continued down these storm cellar steps in silence, but for the emergency tone. Behind us, my father pulled the cellar door shut. I could hear him sliding latches into place followed by the flicking up padlocks. After he had secured the door, he came to the bottom of the stairs and guided us toward a secondary room in the cellar. As my father began to chain and bolt the door to the room... My mother sat the radio down on an old table, sat in a worn armchair, and pulled me close to her chest. All of these decades later, I can still remember feeling her pulse hammer in my ear. Her breathing was rapid and she held me so tightly, I was scared I wouldn't be able to catch my breath. It's going to be okay, baby, my mother said with a shaking voice. This is just something we have to do here sometimes to stay safe. What are we hiding from? I asked, and juvenile fear mounting. My mother was opening her mouth to respond when my father made a shushing noise. He pointed toward the weather alert radio on the table. The tone had now shifted from a droning whine into prolonged bursts. A robotic male voice began to speak after the last one. This is a message from the emergency alert system of the Alistair Valley Safety and Protection Board. At this time, please seek shelter in a basement, storm shelter, or interior room of your house without windows. This is a level 2 watch. I repeat, this is a level 2 watch. No entities have yet been spotted. Unusual activities were reported on Palumbo Street and Slate Street. Remain indoors and away from windows until you receive an all-clear message from this channel. The same mechanical message played in a rotation punctuated with the pulsing whine. My mother continued pressing me to her chest and the rhythmic beat of her heart and the gentle lullaby she sang had eventually caused me to drift off to sleep. My mother and father never told me what we were hiding from that day. As I ate my breakfast the next morning, I can remember listening to the local AM news on the radio. My father was cooking breakfast as my mother and I sat at the table reading a Bernstein Bears book when the DJ fell silent. When his husky voice returned to the air, he announced that a little girl named Margaret Cupsworth had gone missing the day before. No search efforts will be made as these circumstances of her disappearance are well understood to our town, the man said. A memorial for Margaret will be held at the Hall Street Elementary School gym this evening. In lieu of flowers, the family requests donations are made to Alistair Valley's safety and protection board. My family went to the memorial service that evening. I had never won a tie before but my mother had taken me to the local department store and purchased one. When we arrived, I remember thinking that the entire town must have shown up. A huge line was formed to comfort the family as they stood by a flower-lined photo of their daughter. Margaret smiled at the camera in her pink flower dress, eternally happy, eternally on. Margaret had been in preschool with me. She was not a close friend at that age. I was still friendly in the phase of life where girls were gross and scary. But still, I remember being sad that she was gone. Not that I entirely understood at the time that she was dead. Mom and Dad had explained to me on the way to the memorial that... People who didn't get inside when the emergency alert sounded were never seen again. They never clearly stated that it meant they were dead. But as I grew older, I came to understand that was the likeliest outcome. My family reached the front of the receiving line and my father prompted me to shake hands with Mr. Cubsworth. He looked angry and sad all at once. When he took my hand, he shook it gently and nodded to me. My eyes welled with tears. Grief radiated from him. Even at my young age, I could feel the despair. Mom comforted Mrs. Copsworth, so I continued down the line. Besides, her mother stood a little girl, her red face streaked with tears. She couldn't have been more than four. To this day, I will never understand why they made her stand there in her sorrow and face a town full of people who could not comfort her. Hi... I said meekly. Was Margaret your sister? The girl nodded her head but didn't say a word. She was real nice, I stammered. She was in my class too. The little girl sobbed loudly and wrapped her arms around me. My arms were pinned to my side and I was mortified. But I stood there and I let her squeeze my chest. Mama told her not to play so far from the house. The little girl cried. cried. She knew she wasn't allowed to go that far. That was the day that I met Paige Cupsworth. She ended up being my high school sweetheart, short and feisty and smart as a whip. I probably would have married her too, but unfortunately, Alistair Valley and its cursed sirens had no respect for the hopes and dreams of its citizens. The four years of college was the only break that I ever received from the intermittent emergency signals from my hometown. A few times a year there would be a national weather service alert on campus. And while most of my classmates seemed unconcerned, I was always the oddball. The first time it happened, I ran out of my English 102 class and sprinted to the boiler room in the basement of the class hall. It was embarrassing to say the least. Some of my friends in the class called myself on to ask if I was okay, and when I explained to them that this was a normal protocol in my hometown, they seemed confused. I considered trying to explain the Alistair Valley safety and protection warnings to them, but it was clear they didn't have similar experiences growing up. Paige and I talked on the phone every night and visited on as many weekends as my scrawny bank account would allow mom helped out where they could but i had to work most weekends to make enough money to cover expenses dad had passed away unexpectedly my freshman year and money was tight for her i still feel as though if i had gone home more often maybe Paige would still be here it took me a few more alarms to fight the urge to hide in a subterranean windowless room but eventually i was able to control my urges Tornadoes were very uncommon in the area and the alerts that I would receive on my cell phone were generally just to let you know that bad weather was on the way. It didn't always indicate a need to take shelter. Those may have been the only completely relaxed years of my entire life. Early in my last semester of college, I could tell Paige was becoming despondent. She was attending a community college in the next county over from Alistair Valley. I invited and pleaded with her to transfer to the East state college with me, but she wisely declined. All of the courses she needed for her degree were available at a much lower cost there. Are you coming back to Alistair Valley after you graduate? She asked, one night on the phone. More likely than not, I replied. With Dad gone, I think mom probably needs more help, so I hate to be too far away. And besides, you seem pretty set on being a social worker there, and I like to think that I fit somewhere in your five-year plan. She paused longer than I was comfortable with. We had talked about marriage in an abstract way since I had graduated high school, but it never made any official declarations. The silence had been unnerving. Paige, I said, are you still there? Yeah, she said flatly. I'm here, and I'm planning on getting her interview anytime soon unless you act up. Sometimes I just think, you know, we could start over somewhere else. I was surprised to hear that she was considering moving away. She had always talked about her career plans in the community, enrolling in college so close that allowed her to be with her parents. It wasn't as though I had considered venturing elsewhere but Alistair Valley. It had always seemed to be our future together. I'm not saying no, I responded, and just kind of surprised I guess. What is you thinking of leaving now? I want to have kids someday, Chris, she said. I don't want to have to worry that. What happened to Margaret, well... She began to cry softly and didn't finish the sentence. I reassured her as best I could, but it never seemed to be of much use in those days. More and more of our conversations had turned to Margaret that semester... While she was a fleeting memory to me from my childhood school days, she was a never-present thought for Paige. Every time the warning message sounded in town, she would call me. Whenever another citizen of Alistair Valley went missing during the emergency alert, Paige would recount all the details she knew during her calls. All of these conversations were punctuated by Margaret, My heart ached for her, but it seemed to be growing into a weight that she wasn't able to shoulder. More frequently, she began to ask what I thought was outside during the alerts, and I told her honestly that I didn't know. The alerts and warnings for my parents had always been enough to keep me inside. Sometimes during the sirens, I can hear a little girl talking outside, she told me one night. and Dad will yell for her to go away and Mom will cry in the corner. They haven't told you, but I think it's Margaret. It isn't Margaret, I replied sadly. Baby, she's been gone for a long time. I'm sorry, I know it's hard, but it isn't her. Maybe, she said complacently. "Uh, You're right, I love you. She hung up the phone. I wish I had known that would be our last phone call. I would have made it last all night. I would have driven home and spent every minute with her from then on. I would have done everything differently. But I didn't, and I can't. My phone rang late in the evening the day after finals. I was lugging boxes from my shabby apartment to my car in preparation to make the final drive back home to Alistair Valley. Sliding the box from my hand onto the floor, I walked to the kitchen counter to look at the caller ID. Bruce Cupsworth number flashed on Nokia's green screen. I was puzzled since I didn't frequently talk to Paige's father on the phone. We had a great relationship and always enjoyed one another's company at family gatherings. He just wasn't a chatty man. A phone call was unusual unless something was wrong. Hello? I said as I lifted my phone to my ear. Paige is gone. Bruce sat in a wavering baritone. There was an alert last night and she's gone. I could hear Paige's mother wailing in the background, and I could hear sniffling and the choking of sobs from her father. How? I asked. It was all that I had been able to manage in my shock. The alert sounded during dinner, he muttered. Her mother and I headed to the basement. Paige said she was going to get her cell phone from her room to call you. When we came upstairs, the front door was standing open. We haven't seen her since. My heart dropped and I couldn't speak. I felt like I should cry but no tears came. My brain told me to wail but I couldn't. I just felt empty. Did Paige say anything strange to you the last time you spoke? Her father asked. Yeah, I stammered. She, uh, she said something about a little girl's voice outside the door during the alerts. I think she said it sounded like Margaret. Chris, he said. I should have told, no, never mind. We're having a memorial service for her tomorrow. Will you come? My heart began to race and I could feel the heat rise to my face. "A A memorial service, I scoffed. You should be organizing a search party she could still be out there. A moment of silence fell between us. Aren't you going to look for her? I begged. Christopher, he said in a broken monotone, you know that isn't how this works. Paige is gone, just like Margaret. What the heck took her? I shouted. What is out there? Why do we have to hide? We aren't going to discuss this. He said, anger rising in his voice. This is hard enough with you trying to do this right now. Or do what? I demanded. Ask why you aren't looking for your daughter. Ask why we have to hide in the dark and no one ever explains why. Do you even know? Yes, he replied. After Margaret was taken, the safety board met with us and explained some of it. Some of it? I yelled. Hot tears were streaming down my face. Your kids vanish and you just accept it? The phone line went dead. I tried calling Bruce multiple times, but it went directly to his voicemail. My attempts to call Mrs. Cupsworth went unanswered as well. Paige's parents never spoke to me again, and I don't blame them. They had suffered the horrific loss of their only two children, but in my hot-headed youth... I wasn't able to consider their sense of loss, as I can now. In my early 40s, I can see how unsympathetic I was to their grief and sorrow. I moved back to Alistair Valley after college and to, I've been here ever since. The emergency alert system has become more advanced in the last few years. The strange pink and yellow vertical stripes and droning alarm on the television are still in place but now we also receive Amber Alert-style warnings on our cell phones. The safety board even installed a powerful air raid siren on the outside of the courthouse. I'm in my forties now. My mother's health and mental state began to deteriorate rapidly after I moved back into town. The intent had always been to live with her for a few months while I got my feet in the ground and I found my own place. But when her dementia began to present itself we made the decision that I would stay with her rather than move her into a care facility. Luck was largely on my side when I began to search for a job that would accommodate the time it took to care for my mother. A mid-sized publishing company out of New York hired me to work from home soon after college. The pay has never been astronomical, but it allows me to work at my own pace and keep an eye on my mom. Over the years, as her dementia worsened, It became more difficult to keep mom in the basement when the emergency alert systems activated. Eventually, I was forced to invest a good deal of money in having her old storm cellar converted into a finished basement. It's a comfortable place for her and she spends most of her day down there reading. It greatly simplified things for when the alarm sounded. She had become combative when I tried to corral her to the cellar before I had converted it into a studio apartment. Now, when the sirens sound, she's already securely placed and goes about her day without a care. When the alert would sound, I would sit by the door leading out to her downstairs apartment. Before I would go down there to wait it out with her, I always made sure the doors and windows were firmly locked. It gave me the illusion of safety, but it didn't stop the voices that I had started to hear outside of the door. Years ago, when I had first moved back to Alistair Springs, the emergency alert system had sounded my first night in town. Mom was still pretty sharp back then. We had moved into the cellar and listened to the weather radio for information. A few minutes into the warning, I could hear something brushing against the metal doors. Chris, a hushed voice said through the barrier. It sounded like Paige. Chris, please let me in, I'm so scared. I began to cry immediately. Christopher, the voice implored. Let me in. They're going to hurt me. My mother had walked behind me and placed a hand on my shoulder. It isn't her, my boy, she said in a soothing voice. I know you hear Paige talking, but it isn't her. I hear your father's voice out there right now. He's telling me how much he misses us and to open the door. It gets easier. That alarm lasted longer than usual. A voice that sounded hauntingly like Paige taunted me for nearly an hour. It said that if I would just open the door, it would explain where she had been. I was the only one that could save her. It was my fault that she had vanished. Through the years, I grew used to the haunting voice. My sorrow turned to anger at the taunts, where my mother at once comforted me through them. I now spent my time comforting her dementia riddled mind, who was now confused by the calls of my father. She forgot them quickly after the alerts put the grief and one in her eyes. It broke my heart. The amount of medication she is on to manage the worst of her symptoms is astonishing. Fortunately, the local pharmacy was accommodating and getting all of her medication refills lined up on the same day. The less time that I had to spend out of the house of the pharmacy or the grocery store, the better. Mom needs around-the-clock care now. It's wearing me thin, but I can't stand the thought of her withering away in a nursing home. When I pulled up to the pharmacy this afternoon, the tack, Chrissy greeted me with a smile. She pulled the crinkly white bags off of the shelf and placed them in a brown paper bag. As she rang me up at the register, she furrowed her brow. "'Sorry, Chris,' the young lady said. "'It looks like we only had four of the five medications in stock. "'The pharmacist transferred the one we didn't have over the Glendale "'so we could keep our fill dates lined up. "'Frustrated, I looked down at my watch. "'I had stopped at the grocery store before the pharmacy. "'It had been an hour and a half since I left Mom at home. "'The drive to and from Glendale would take at least 30 minutes "'if everything went smoothly.' Two hours couldn't hurt, could it? Thanks, Chrissy. I said in a friendly a manner as I could. I'll have that way. I appreciate it. Chrissy handed me the bag and I headed out the door. Settling in the driver's seat of my car, I pulled on my phone and called Mom. It went to her voicemail just as I had expected. I sent a text message explaining that I would be out longer. She rarely saw them, but I like to do my best to get a hold of her when our routine had changed up. After a moment of waiting for a call or a response text message, it became clear that I wouldn't be hearing from her. Not wanting to waste any more time, I put the car in drive and headed in the direction of Glendale. My mind was washed in the anxiety of having to leave my mother at home alone for so long, but my options were limited. For a moment I considered calling our neighbor to keep an eye on her, but that option had exhausted itself. The number of times that Ted and Ellen had kept an eye on her had overwhelmed them over the years. Her temper when they would try to keep her in or near the house had worn them down. Abandoning the thought, I tossed myself on the seat beside me. The trip took longer than I had anticipated. When I finally arrived at the pharmacy in Glendale, it had taken over twenty five minutes. The old road between our two towns was down to a single lane for resurfacing. It had taken the pharmacist an additional 10 minutes to fill the script. Their computer system looked as though if it was cutting edge during the latter half of the Clinton administration and the transfer had only arrived a few moments before I had walked in the door. I paid as quickly as I could and headed out to the car to get back on the road. Looking on my cell phone I saw that my mother stood and called me back or returned my message. The ocean of anxiety in my head was beginning to swell. It wasn't unusual for her to ignore her cell phone, but it never ceased to fill me with an unhealthy level of existential dread. My drive back to Alistair Valley was more forgiving than the drive to Glendale. When I had reached the one lane portion of the road, I had arrived just in time for the woman holding the stop sign to wave my line of traffic through. I waved a grateful hand in her direction and she returned it with a smile. Small town friendliness can be a welcome thing. By the time that I was two blocks from my mother's house, my cell phone began to squeal wildly in the passenger seat next to me. Initially, I thought it was my mother calling but my heart sank when I realized it was the emergency alert system. Slamming the gas pedal to the floor, I sped home as quickly as I could. I reached toward the radio and turned the volume knob up. From the emergency alert system of the Alistair Valley Safety and Protection Board. At this time, please seek shelter in a basement, storm shelter, or interior room of your house without windows. This is a Level 5 watch. I repeat, this is a Level 5 watch. These entities have been spotted on and around West Vine Street, Chippendale Court, and Broadway Avenue. Remain indoors and away from all windows until you receive an all-clear message from this channel. Only condition updates from the Alistair Valley Safety and Protection Board serve as factual information. This is a message from... The message began to play in a loop over and over. West Vine was only two streets away from our house on Sullivan Street. Sweat was pouring down my forehead and stinging my eyes. I punched the garage button from a block away and it was thrilled to see it open when the front of our house came into view. Pulling the car into the garage I surveyed the scene but didn't see anything out of the ordinary. My garage door began to close behind me and I jumped out of the car to head to the door. The groceries and medication would have to wait until after the warning. Milk and eggs could be replaced. I couldn't afford to wait any longer to get these other doors secured and check on mom. Racing through the house, I did my usual check-out on the doors and windows. Every lock was bolted and every window was secured. My pulse began to lower and I could feel the anxiety drifting away as the safety of home soaked into my body. As I began to step onto the stairs of the cellar, I pulled the heavy metal door shut behind me. Carefully, I slid the two bracer bars snugly into place. My hand drifted to the wall beside me and my ears were filled with the familiar jingling of the padlock keys. After being reassured that the keys were securely in place, I began to click all ten padlocks into their loops. I turned and began to walk down the stops. My eyes wandered to the hooks that held the bolt cutter. It was always the last item on my mental checklist. If a padlock key ever went missing or one of the lock's mechanisms seized, it was good to have a backup plan. Dad had nearly perfected the art of our family lockdown during the sirens. Every time I entered the cellar to wait out the alarm, I sent him a silent prayer of thanks. He had graciously taken most of the thought out of this process before he had passed away. Reaching the floor of the cellar apartment, I was initially surprised to see my mother's recliner sitting empty. Her iPhone sat on the side table next to the chair, flashing and beeping with the emergency alert. My eyes darted around the room, searching for her. Panic began to rise again, until I noticed the bathroom door was shut. I walked to the door and knocked lightly. Hey mom, I said loudly, sorry that it took me so long I had to drive to Glendale to get some of your medicine. I waited for a moment, but there was no response. Mom, you in there? I asked. Silence. I knocked and waited for a moment, but still received no response. I jiggled, the door handle, and found it unlocked. Pushing it open, I looked inside. The light was off, so I flicked the switch on. The bathroom was empty, though. Storming around this other apartment, I began to call my mother's name and received no reply. The area was small with only a sitting room, bedroom, and bathroom. It didn't take long to realize that she wasn't down there. My head began to swim. The garage door had been opened when I had pulled into the driveway. Although I had punched the opener from a block away, I had no idea if the signal had reached that far. She could have left through the garage and left the door open and I would have never known. I raced to the stairs and began to pull the keys from their pegs in the wall. Hours seemed to pass as I fumbled the keys in each lock. Generally, I would put them carefully back into their place in the loops, but I dropped them to the stairs and listened as they tumbled to the ground below. As I was about to step onto the main floor of the house above, I heard the alert system beep three times to indicate an update. This is a message from the Emergency Alert System of the Alistair Valley Safety and Protection Board. At this time, please seek shelter in a basement, storm shelter, or interior room of your house without windows. This is a level 5 watch, I repeat. This is a level 5 watch. 12 entities are actively moving on West Fine Street, Chippendale Court, Broadway Avenue, Sullivan Street, Clay's Mill Road, and LaGrange Road. The unusual amount of activity will extend the warning as a precaution. Please remain away from doors or windows. Whatever was out there was on my street. My heart pounded. I had to find my mother. I searched the house again. Although I had already checked all the windows and door locks, I had not performed an exhaustive search of the house. I had never needed to in the past. Now, I opened every door, searched in every closet, and checked behind every large piece of furniture but found no sign of her. Cautiously, I opened the door leading into the garage and stepped down onto the concrete below. Scanning the room, there was still no sign of her. I was preparing to head back into the house again when I heard a voice out in the street. I thought you had died. I heard my mother's voice say, Christopher tells me that you died, but here you are. I've been waiting for you. Slowly, I crept to the garage door and looked out the window. My mother was standing in the center of the street in her house coat and slippers. Her hair in disarray and she clutched a newspaper in her right hand. In front of her stood my father, looking almost exactly the way I remembered before he had died. He wore the same pale blue jeans and short-sleeved button-up shirt and white Nike sneakers that he always had. His hair had turned an unhealthy silver in comparison to the salt-and-pepper gray that I recalled. His mouth was cocked into the same mute smile that always seemed painted onto his face. His eyes, though, were black the sun was shining, but there was no light reflecting off of them. It wasn't as much like looking into the darkness of a basement as it was staring into the empty void of space. No star or fleck of light obscured the darkness they held. I've missed you, my dear. I heard my father say as he held his hand out to my mother. It's been so long, but we need not be apart any longer. Let me go get Christopher. My mother exclaimed, I'll be so happy to see you. No, my father shouted. He reached forward and took her hand firmly in his, and began to walk down the street away from the house. I've come to you, my dear. We will send for Christopher later. My mother stumbled behind my father. She turned her head toward the house and dropped the newspaper as our eyes connected. The joy she had felt upon seeing this thing that looked like my father melted away into fear. Her feet became tangled and she fell to the asphalt, but the terrible mirage of my father continued to drag her away. No! She shouted feebly. No, you let go of me. You're not my husband. Why are you doing this? Let go. In my shock, I had become frozen in place. But watching this thing drag my mother away helped me regain my will. I dashed to the switch for the garage door and I punched it. The door opened so slowly that I decided to dive under the floor and slide through the thin opening. Pushing myself back onto my feet, I readied myself to run after my mother. Before I could take action, I saw her. Paige was in the street in front of me. I froze again. Her mother and father were walking with her hand in hand. On the far side of the family... A little girl held tightly to Bruce Copsworth's hand. It was Margaret. I hadn't seen her in more than three decades, but I still recognized her. She wore the same pink flower dress that had been in the photo at her memorial. And Paige turned her head toward me and my eyes locked with the black sockets in her head. I knew it couldn't be, but it looked so much like her. The thing smiled at me and lifted a hand to greet me. My stomach turned to knots and I felt like I would vomit at any moment. "'I'll be back, Christopher,' she said and she continued to walk down the street. "'I miss you and we can be together soon,' Paige's parents looked in my direction. Their faces, which initially looked joyful, quickly became grimaces of pain and fear. They both began to try and withdraw their hand from the clutches of the things impersonating the children, but they were unable to break free.' The air filled with a sound like snapping twigs and they began to scream. The things were crushing the bones in their hands. Ahead of them on the street, the thing mimicking my father turned around and smiled at the noise in terror. It looked at me and lifted its hand in my direction. The thing smiled again, revealing rows of black, shining teeth. It crouched to the ground by my mother and began to shake. All at once, the changeling things began to shake violently, their limbs began to grow thin and long, the clothing on their bodies began to shred and break away, as painfully thin torsos stretched them past their limit. Their skin, which had looked normal only moments ago, began to bubble, pale peach skin curdled into lumpy black and grey flesh. They all stood at once, stooped over to keep a grip on their victims. At full height, each of the obsidian beasts would have stood as tall as a two-story home. Their spine curled to the side as they hunched over, allowing their stick-thin arm to drag my mother and the worth away. The three nightmarish creatures sank low on two legs and their free hands began rapidly moving down the street, pulling their victims behind them. My mother and the Cupsworth screamed and clawed at the ground in a fruitless attempt to slow the creatures as they bolted from sight. I could still hear them wailing to despair long after they had vanished from my line of sight. In the background, the emergency alert siren roared endlessly. I stumbled back inside and collapsed onto the kitchen floor. There was no need to hide in the basement. The things had already gotten what they came for. It's been two weeks since the last emergency warning, a town record I have since found out. The Alistair Valley Safety and Protection Board sent a man to my house the day after my mother was taken by those things. He didn't threaten me, but there was a subtle undertone that told me declining to go with him to the board's office was not an option. I rode in the back of a Ford Taurus with tinted windows to the outskirts of town. When we pulled up to the nondescript white building, the man who picked me up told me to ring the buzzer in the door and tell them my name. They would let me in and talk to me. When I was done, he would drive me home. Feeling lost and hopeless after the events of the previous day, I did as he had asked. I pressed the buzzer and a man asked my name. I answered and heard the heavy metal door lock disengage. The man told me to come inside and to wait in the lobby. When I entered, I looked around. Lobby was a generous term for this stiflingly hot room. There were two folding metal chairs pushed up against the wall and an empty coffee table in the center of the room. A water cooler sat empty in the corner. It smelled of cigarettes and sweat. The only other door in the room creaked open and a gruff looking man stood in the frame. He was over six feet tall with a bushy beard that hung down into his paw and a mess of brunette hair pulled back into a sloppy ponytail. His steel-toed work boots tapped impatiently on the fading linoleum floor. A pair of faded blue jeans and sweat-stained white t-shirt seemed like poor work attire. You Chris? The rough man grunted. Yeah, I replied flatly, that would be me. He waved me in his direction and walked back into the room. I followed without considering what may be on the other side. Having seen my mother dragged away by a horrific creature the day before, my sense of self-preservation was pretty low. The room that I entered in was much cooler than the waiting area. Black and white monitors covered two of the walls flickering between different views of Alistair Valley. I watched them in a trance as they transitioned to dozens of places around town that I recognized in a few I was less familiar with. In the center of the room sat a semicircle desk with a comfortable looking rolling chair behind it. The burly man sat at the desk looking at the monitors. Without looking at me, he motioned to his left to a folding metal chair beside him. Have a seat, he said. We need to talk. I sat next to him and continued to look at the screens. My name is Harlan Matthews, the man said. Been working for the board for about 15 years, give or take. Used to work the night shift, but I'm on days now. I nodded but said nothing. So, I understand you saw our visitors, he stated. Sad business, I'm sorry for your loss. I understand it ain't your first go around with losing someone to this. Yeah, I muttered. Paige Cupsworth a long time ago, my mother yesterday... He nodded and took a long drag of a cigarette that had been smoldering in an ashtray on the desk. Chris, he started. I'm going to give you the same brief sliver of information that I and the other board members share when someone loses a family member. I know you and Paige were close, but we only talk with immediate family members. Now that your mother passed, you'll get to hear it too. Harlan smoked the last of his cigarette, and he crushed it out into the ashtray before immediately lighting another one. First of all, we have no clue what the things are. They've been around since the town has. From what we know, they try to mimic people you were close to and draw you out. Must be some kind of mind reading or something. Not like we've been able to ask them or anything. Anyway, anyone dumb enough to listen to the things gets dragged away and they never return. I nodded again. And Tarlin pounded a hand on my back in what I assumed was a gesture of comfort. "'Not many people see them and live to tell the tale,' he grunted. "'You have, and it comes with a price.' "'What price?' I blurted. "'Whatever they looked like to you yesterday is what they'll always look like to you,' he said as he made the first real eye contact of the entire conversation. "'And you'll start seeing them more often.' You've seen them, and that makes them want you. It ain't like they hunt you, but they take some kind of special interest in the people who see them and live. Harlan pulled a drawer out of the desk and fished a card out. He handed it to me. I turned it over in my hand. One side was blank, but the other held a local phone number. Underneath the number was printed. For emergencies only. You ever heard of a level one or two warning? He asked. Of course you have you were born here you see any of the people who you saw yesterday you call us we sound the alarm people live you do your duty i do mine understand yeah i said as i bobbed my head up and down just call the number if i see them good man harlan said adding another brutal comfort swat on my right shoulder We've got a memorial together for your Ma Donna, at the community center tonight at 7pm. Sorry for your loss. Yesterday, before those things changed, they looked like my father, Paige, and her sister, uh, Margaret. I said to Harlan, is that what they looked like to you on the screen? Harlan sat silent for a moment and smoked a cigarette. No, he said without emotion. I don't much want to talk about what I see. ''You said you saw your dad.'' I nodded. Harlan pulled a notebook from the desk and began jotting notes. ''Something wrong?'' I asked. ''Yeah.'' He replied as he continued writing. ''No one ever said the things looked like someone that the things hadn't before. It's worth it sharing with the others. Change ain't a good thing with these critters.'' Harlan walked me out of the building and sent me to the car. Once I got home, I sat and thought about everything the man had told me. The grief and discovery were an overwhelming combination that left my head swimming. I did what any son would do when I stood in a receiving line later that night at a memorial service the safety and protection board had set up. Next to me was a framed photo of my mother before dementia lined with flowers, eternally happy, eternally herself. I shook the hand of just about every person in town, it was no comfort, but I think it made them feel better. Since that day, I've seen my mother, father, and all the Cupsworth multiple times. They're usually standing in tall grass or leaning out from behind trees. Sometimes, they're in my backyard, and others follow me down the aisles at the supermarket. If you live in Alistair Valley, then I'm certainly the origination point of one of the many emergency alerts that you hear. I'm sorry, but I'm also not and keeps you safe. And if you wonder why I don't leave to get away from all this, well, I ran the idea by Harlan once. He explained to me that the risk that these things would leave Alistair Valley to follow me and spread to other places was too great. It was similar to when the man picked me up to go see him. No threat of violence was issued, but there was an understanding that leaving now that I've seen the things wasn't an option. I'll be haunted by my family and the woman that I loved until I'm dead. For better or worse, I've accepted this. My hope is you won't have to live in the same nightmare that I do. Paige and my mother speak to me most often through the cellar door during the alerts. I don't cry anymore. In fact, hearing their voices is comforting sometimes. It should be, but I miss them. One day I'm almost certain I'll go with them just to end all of this. Anyhow, I have to go make a call. I can see Paige is sitting on a bench across the street from my house through the living room window. Harlan or one of the others needs to sound the alarm. islands in the Eastern Siberian Sea are disappearing. My research team is to blame. Written by Kyle Harrison Chernobog Station was but a hollow reminder of the grim reality of what the Arctic Circle could do in a single night. Frost and harsh winds tore apart equipment, covering everything in a slick sheet of icy grey and black. It gave the impression of a shine as our ship dipped near the main landing platform. Captain Alan Blaine let out a soft whistle and took off his hat. It was clear the facility had seen better days but that wasn't why he was paying reference. Among the frozen landscape, we could see the remains of the researchers that had failed to escape the sudden onslaught of cold. Their eyes were wide with fear, frantically climbing toward any measure of safety that was available. But nothing that this remote outpost offered would have been enough. Thirteen souls, that's a bad omen. Abdul, our Iranian guide, commented as we had dropped anchor. The water was at least 30 degrees below zero, and not a sign of life flickered around our boat as I followed the captain to the ladder. Everything about this place is bad luck. I agreed as I checked my portable laptop. The signal was gone, and not even my normal apps could function in this awful environment. Best leave that here. No amount of mathematics will be able to help you for what they have uncovered. That was Chief Science Officer Seneca Castine, a Croatian that claimed to have been a survivor of the previous Arctic megastorm. He was the one that said there would be no way the crew here had survived when we had discovered that they were radio silent for nearly three years, or rather, when we had learned that this place even exists. How long do you think their dark winter lasted? I whispered as we climbed and despite the heavy gear that we wore it seemed that each step we made caused sharp cold pains to shoot through my body a dreadful reminder of the impossible climate I would be working in. Most likely only a few hours if they were lucky but it goes without saying that despite the evidence of imminent death these fine men and women did us all a service by sending out that SOS. Seneca commented Do we happen to know why it took so long for the Arctic outpost to get the information? Blaine had asked. We were stepping now into what looked like a helipad of some kind, with a massive drill attached that was pointed toward the iceberg that they had been excavating. From this angle, I couldn't see anything that made the chunk of ice any different than the hundreds of others that darted up from the frigid sea. But clearly, the researchers here felt the discovery had been worth keeping their entire operation hidden from everyone on the planet. To answer Blaine's question, Seneca was scanning the area for electromagnetic activity, and his equipment was already at extremely high levels. Even with all of the protective equipment that we were wearing, the spiking meter made me uneasy. All of the activity here is off the charts. It's likely kept any sort of communication from transmitting until there was a soft spot, the Croatian explained. The final member of our team, a geologist named Edward Kant, arrived in the rear with all the necessary tools to take samples of the ice. Walk us through precisely what happened, Kant told Seneca. The older man gestured for us to follow him to the south side of the station, where the command and observation center were located at precisely 1300 hours on november 4th a category 5 megastorm capable of producing winds up to 140 miles per hour was recorded to emerge from this location there were no factors to indicate that the storm was on the horizon no meteorological data to provide us with a reason to believe this island was in any danger Of course, all of this is somewhat speculative as the operation was hidden from satellite imagery until after the storm hit. And then the research team sent out what little data they had on an unidentified object of massive diameter to our outpost in northern Greenland. The rest, as you can see, is history, Seneca muttered as we climbed up the stairs. All of this was filed with the United Nations and Dr. Parker. Our head of operations, did you not read the file? He asked. Kent looked a bit flushed, not wanting to admit that he hadn't. Instead, he focused on the iceberg inside. I've never actually seen a glacial mass of this size. We should begin taking down all measurements and determine precisely where they stopped their excavation. Blaine had commented. Captain, I don't think that'll be necessary. I sat my mouth going dry. In the early morning fog, we stood nearly a yard away from a steel platform that reached across a gap of the dead winter to the ice dam itself. Revealing a dark hole that bore into the ice like God himself had punched into the ancient cold mountain. All of us wordlessly followed the platform into the depths of the iceberg, the chill in the air suddenly making me feel claustrophobic. There was a presence here, something that I couldn't quite put my finger on, I realized as we climbed down the rope ladder to a clearing below. I was the first to arrive, my eyes fixed on the form of a completely crystallized woman standing near to where the drill had stopped moving. The massive vehicle itself was actually small in comparison to the object that had appeared from beneath the wintry rock. It was clear and polished. As wide as Lake Michigan and as dark as the starry sky, not a crack or blemish broke apart the shimmering surface, but around the edges I saw what looked like beveled contours that were made of stones from what looked like every corner of the earth. Perhaps most striking about the object was what I saw within. Reflections of myself, the other scientists in the iceberg, a mere image of our surroundings save for one detail. The iceberg itself was carved as though part of a larger city, one made not of human hands. The buildings were as clear as glass, infinitely stretching beyond what I could see toward a shadowy beach that spanned what should have been the reflection of the gaping hole above, and amid the chaotic city of up and down, strange creatures that I could hardly fathom coursed back and forth near to the edge of the mirror. What in the heck is this? Ken asked, his voice hardly a whisper in the chasm. He took a tentative step closer to the massive looking glass. His breath, catching in his throat as his own reflective image, caught his eye. It was then I realized that his mere self was acting on its own accord, marching toward Ken as if they knew each other. At the same moment, the geologist came to a complete stop, his face paler than the iceberg itself. I I can't... I can't move, he cried out frantically. I turned toward him, wondering if the shock of the mirror was causing him to panic. But instead, I saw his lower body was turning to crystal in the same way as the woman that was to my left. In a flash of light, Kent screamed out and the strange, limpid material covered his entire body, paralyzing him. Get away from it, everyone retreat, I shouted. Seneca was the only one that hesitated. He was fishing for a camera to take a few candid images of our find, not even remotely concerned about capturing the horror of what was occurring around us. Grabbing his arm, Abdul chastised him and we did not need any more prompting to obey an escape. As we hurried to the frozen tundra outside, Captain Blaine tried to get a grasp on what we had just discovered. I think I understand now why this facility was removed from satellites. He said, holding his hand next to his heart. It shouldn't be possible, that thing. It's not of this earth, is it? Seneca asked. We have a legend of a world that is laid out across a flat, smooth surface. A mighty king created an underground sanctum to hide from a terrible winter that reshaped the world. They crossed over into another world to remain hidden, and there they became gods, Abdul said. His eyes were mystified by what we had seen, and I wondered how much of his story could be true. The mirror should be worshipped and revered for it, as powers beyond imagination, he added. I thought back to what we had learned about the weather and how suddenly it had hit the base. That wall of ice came down with a single impact of the drill, revealing the mirror. When the team saw the object, it must have been what altered the climate of this area, I reasoned. It completely changed the structure of this entire region, Alan realized. I could see the gears in his head turning as the air around us grew stiff. We need to lock down this entire island, maintain the satellite blackout. No one should be allowed near that mirror. Contact our allies, we need more drills here from every military force that are available to donate their men for a full excavation. We need to dig this up as soon as possible, he decided. You must be joking. Did you just see what happened to Kant? As soon as his reflection saw him, he was frozen in place. We would be risking too many lives if we attempted to move it, I argued. And it's that sort of power that we need, Blaine insisted. When the words fell dead in the air, I realized immediately what had prompted his sense of urgency. This was no longer a scientific endeavor, but a military struggle. Whoever held the mirror would likely be able to declare itself the next world power. I realized as I nodded reluctantly. I can gather a team, but I can't make any promises, I told Emma. My mind raced as we left the outpost, the sea below becoming tumultuous as if nature itself could sense the dark plans that had begun. As we climbed aboard, I took a look at the massive light sheet again, trying to imagine how much of the pallid stone the mirror had encompassed. We don't need just drills; we need weapons. I told the captain. I hoped that he would not suspect the true reasons behind my request, and much to my relief, he agreed to it without hesitation. I kept my head down as our ship struggled to push away from the forsaken island my brain working double time to decide how many explosives it would take to sink the iceberg to the bottom of the Siberian Sea. Little did I realize the nightmares that I would be unleashing. We did not return to Chernobyl until the warm season came. Our team tripled in in size to fulfill the military's desire to procure the gigantic mirror. Our fleet was filled with Russian and Iranian forces, along with a few East Euro elites that were here merely to observe and to bark orders. Each was armed to the teeth, based on the preliminary warnings that I had given about our find. I wasn't sure even with the most advanced weapons at her disposal, if it would be enough, for other matters had occurred to the rest of the team after we had departed in the winter. Seneca was the first to experience bad luck, his wife leaving him when he had returned to Croatia, with the developed photographs of the mirror. He had phoned me one night, his voice filled with dread as he tried to describe what he had seen in the pictures. "'I... we can't go back there. The mirrors are a doorway, uh, perhaps a portal, worlds beyond our mortal understanding. I saw death and life. It was both beautiful and terrifying.' He offered to send me a copy of the photo, but then changed his mind over and over again. The more he talked, I recognized that he was losing his mind as we went on. This was a man of science and years of repute, and he was babbling the way in infant would. I cannot look at myself in any mirror any longer. Only the true world is what can give me solace. I need to return. I need to release my captive dreams. He whispered over and over again. It sounded like a chant sometimes. And then after speaking to his wife, I learned that his madness had descended upon their household much like the megastorm. She said that he had smashed every surface in our place that even had the slightest glimmer of his face showing. And then, with the broken jagged pieces of glass, he began to ram them into his eyes over and over again. She said it took her full way to make him stop from bleeding out. In the way that she described him, Seneca did not sound like a man at all. His face was covered in permafrost, paler than a ghost and flaky, yet it doesn't peel. It hardens and solidifies the way icicles do as they drip from firmament, she had told me, her voice hollow and afraid. I did not hear from them again. Instead, seeing an article on a news blog that informed me of their fate. Authorities had raided their house after hearing complaints from the neighbors of a foul smell. It was like crystallized poison wafting through the air, or so they had claimed. And within, they found both the dead body of his wife and the shattered remains of what some described as a statue of a man that was completely glass. Yet I knew this had to be the result of what the mirror had done to poor Seneca. Captain Blaine was next. He said that he was haunted by the images of the mirror in his dreams. Each and every night, his shadow self would take a step closer. Blaine said sometimes that he could feel this reflection closing in on him and choking the breath from his lungs. It's impossible to describe, but it reminds me of when I thought I might drown at an early age, he had admitted. When he heard what had happened to Seneca, he immediately resigned and sought treatment in the states. Only our Iranian friend remained steadfast by my new team, as we approached the island. The fog lifted as we scanned the waters, and I tried desperately to recall where the iceberg had been. And you're certain the coordinates are correct? And the lead researcher had asked. Uh, Parker was her name, and she had a steely gaze that told me disappointing her would cost more than just my career. We scoured the waters for the next few days, our men growing anxious and frustrated as none of the advanced equipment would provide even a hint of where the iceberg had disappeared to. This shouldn't be possible. We have traversed these waters for nearly a week now, one of the captains said as our resources became scanned. We tried using satellites but only received more blurry images. The island seemed to constantly be on the move. Abdul had a suggestion, but it didn't seem practical from a scientific perspective. The wards of this gate are protecting it fiercely. If we wish to find it again, a sacrifice must be made. When the king sealed it away, a pact with the other world was made. This is what our scriptures teach, he told Parker. He wasn't merely talking about loss of resources. He meant a human ritual, Won't take that under consideration,' she promised. "'I couldn't tell if she had lost her mind as well. "'The next day, I found out how far past sanity we all were. "'Abdul had volunteered himself, "'along with several Iranian soldiers "'that believed this would be the only way "'they could ever see their families again. "'The sea has turned against us, "'the same way the storm destroyed the others. "'The gods are testing our resolve.' and we must show them our loyalty, and only by blood can this be done, Abdul told them. He managed to block off the entire south deck of the ship that we were on, as the air itself went still into the eerie northern sea. We have to stop them, I told the captain says some of the soldiers blocked off stairwells, and shot anybody who came close. Parker crossed her arms and cocked her head, as she observed the ritual. We shouldn't be hesitant to embrace unknown concepts, gentlemen. This may in fact be our salvation, she told us. Blood was streaking across the entire deck of the ship by midnight. And then, as I tried to get the captains to sail back toward the eastern shores of Siberia, strange auroras rippled across the sky. Colors that I recognized at first and then morphed into strange, unrecognizable pigments that made my head hurt. All of our equipment went dead and the power shut off, completely darkening the already foreboding sea. The cascading rainbow of strange and abstract colors became like a raging river, constantly fluctuating back and forth over the sea as we had watched in awe. Then the entire sky seemed to split apart. Waters rose from either side of the boats, our massive warships being tossed about as though they were mere toys. The waters were pushing toward the vortex that had formed in the sea, pulling our ships forward into a whirlpool of roaring thunder and iridescent lighting. The entire ocean is falling into that pit. The men shrieked as we all hurried to the inner hull. Our ship rumbled in shock, threatening to tear apart as we began to tip toward the waterfall. There was no escape to be made. I realized as I looked through the fracturing glass windows to the void below... We were plummeting into the unknown. I closed my eyes, grabbing a hold of the rail as all the noise and all sense of surroundings faded away. The crewmen around me seemed to split apart into separate, shadowy reflections of themselves, each wailing like lost souls as we kept falling. Blood rushed through my head as I closed my eyes, feeling a wave of nausea hit me as water struck us on both sides. I collapsed to the ship deck, Parker at my side and the crewmen tossed about like ragdolls. Some were fortunate enough to survive, but the rest were torn apart by the constantly changing waves. And then we heard nothing. My feet were wobbly as I got up and began to climb to the outer deck, my skin tingling with fear as I saw what was before us now. Cities of lights and angles unlike any made by man hung in the air. A twisting and a smooth architecture mixed together to form a sprawling metropolitan maze of gray ziggurats, crystalline walkways, and amalgamated structures that stretched over the sky, and toward the familiar icebergs that I had seen before. Except that instead of a single massive reflective surface now, I saw hundreds of them, all floating ominously in the frigid air, waiting for us to reveal ourselves. This is not our Earth... Parker realized as we moved to the captain's quarters to see if any of the power would work. Nothing. We're sitting ducks out here, the captain commented. and Parker was not so easily discouraged. We have longboats and oars, is that correct? she asked. An hour later, with less than a dozen men in a dinghy, we were rowing toward our fate. The water felt thick as if we were trudging through sand and it was becoming more and more difficult. The darkness below seemed to stretch on for eternity, and strange, indescribable shapes float about the waters, reacting to our movements the way predators would if on the hunt. Seneca's speculation of this being a portal was well-founded, it seems. What do you suppose the connection is here? Parker asked as we got close to one of the larger icebergs that touched the water. A portal to an alien world. I'm not sure if even the most intelligent and philosophical minds could conjure up a hypothesis, ma'am. This is beyond my scope. But the only thing I truly feel here is... Unease. We don't belong. And there is an invisible force that seems to be growing heavier with each breath that we make. You may be right, but it is also enticing. We are likely bait for a power that is beyond the reality we have comprehended our entire evolution... We are reshaping history, so let us not balk now, she decided. The road came to a halt on the western side of the Pillar of Ice, strange carved stairs revealing themselves to lead to the mirror's edge. Someone's been down this path already, I see footprints, one of the soldiers warned. We kept our wits about us as we went forward. Not even our voices sounded like humans anymore as we reached the mirror itself. I couldn't help but to notice that Kant was still in the same place where we had left him. Except now, he was merged with the woman that we had discovered the first time coming to this Arctic wasteland. The two of them seemed to be tearfully begging us to not go further. And beyond the mere surface, I saw those same abstract forms wailing. We need to reach the other side, determine how the portal works. Parker said as she ordered her soldiers to lay down landmines. Without the proper drills, this will be the only way to remove the mirror safely. Make sure they aren't too close to the mirror it could damage the specimen, she added. I peered toward the crystallized, inhuman form of Kant, looking at the woman's face closer. A dark realization daunted me. We need to leave this place. This is not a suggestion. This is a prophecy that we are fulfilling, an evil that is being awakened." I told her as I pointed toward the victims of the mirror. The woman wore Parker's face, and here in this strange history, she had already been fated to be trapped forever. Don't you see that we need to turn back now? I told her. Parker was seemingly unfazed by the revelation, instead, ordering the others to begin blasting as she sought cover. I was one of the few that remained close to the mirror to observe. One by one, the explosives went off, rocketing all across the surface of the ice in the mirror. I didn't know what to expect, but the end result was more frightening than I could have ever anticipated. The glass reflections of ourselves shrieked louder than a rumbling quake, and long dark tendrils of crystal snakes out from the mirror's surface as sharp as glass ripping through these soldiers as lightning bolts. They were consumed and dragged into the widening maw of the mirror, like morsels for a lumbering beast. The mouth of the mirror showed me the familiar platform of the Chernobog outpost, and I shouted for Parker to run toward it. A final blast rocketed me toward the opening void, and I felt the shards of the jagged mirror closing on my leg as I fell through. I awoke on a medical ship, time itself slipping away as I faded in and out of recovery, The madness of the mirror echoed in my memories. My rescuers were part of the East Euro agencies that had chosen to wait behind the Arctic Circle, and they found me lingering in the water alone, clinging to life. We couldn't find any of the other vessels or any other survivors. The entire island vanished before our eyes. A flash of light and then it merged into the sea, as if watching a massive gateway close. The soldiers told me, Given what I had seen on the other side, I believed them. I filed a report, recommending the entire area remain closed off to all vessels for the foreseeable future, and resigned from my position not long after that. The excavation is ended, and the remains of the strange mirror are nowhere to be found in these search parties that have been authorized. Of course, I can, but only speculate as none of them have returned either. The ocean seems to swallow all that enters the zone, and perhaps, as gruesome as it may be, it is better that way than finding what else the mirrors hold for our world. Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you all enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're safe and sound, and as always, stay creepy.